continuing on our journey through the Old Testament, and uh, we have been looking at the feasts of the Lord, and now we're going to be looking for three weeks at uh, the Jewish people, the people of Israel. And so this first week we're going to be looking at the topic of God's chosen people. In the 1964 musical Fiddler on the Roof, it tells the story of a Jewish family that's living in Imperial Russia in 1905. And the father, Tevya, uh, is a poor milkman who longs for a better life for he and his five daughters and his wife. And in the opening scene, Tevya is walking and his uh, horse has taken lame. And so he's having to push this cart uh, with the milk around the, the village there by himself. And he's praying to God, and we get a little bit of insight as we hear his prayer. And he says, I know, I know, we are your chosen people, but once in a while, couldn't you choose somebody else? <laughs> and so the point Tevya was making here is that God had singled out uh, a particular people, and that singling out had its advantages, but it also had its disadvantages and could become a real burden. And so as we look at the scriptures this morning, the question we're going to be dealing with is, why did God have a chosen people? Uh, why did he turn his attention to these Jewish people? What was he trying to accomplish? What were his goals? What were his intentions? So we're going to be looking briefly at Deuteronomy 14 here. And throughout this book uh, of the Bible here, God is setting forth certain laws for the Jews and he's revealing to them the benefits that they can have from following these laws. His reasoning is seen in uh, 14.2. It says, For you are people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And so according to this verse here, the first reason we see that God chooses this uh, particular people is that he wants them to be set aside or holy, that means to be separated. Because most of the world at that time was steeped in paganism. Uh, many centuries had passed since Noah, and people had returned back uh, to the foreign gods, to demons, to worship them. And so he was going to be calling out a chosen people for his own possession. And in regard to this, we see initially a covenant that he made. Not necessarily at first with Israel, as we see them today, but with an individual, an individual named Abraham. And we see that God selected Abraham because he wanted to make a covenant with mankind. He wanted to bless the world through this man. But God first wanted to test him. He tells him that he wants him to leave his own country his own land, and go to a land that he does not know. In fact, it's a land that's already occupied with the Canaanites, a pagan country. And God promised that he was going to give this land to Abraham's descendants. Well, this was pretty shocking to Abraham since he didn't have any children at that time, and he and his wife were beyond childbearing years. But then we see an important verse in Genesis in 15.6 where it says, and he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And so all of these things happened to Abraham as a living picture for us in the natural of what God wanted to do in the spiritual realm. 
He wanted to prosper his children. He wanted to protect them. He wanted to save them from their enemies. And at the very beginning, God shows us that this was all through faith. Believing in something that he couldn't see. Abraham couldn't see how this was going to take place. He couldn't see how he could go to this promised land and fill it with his descendants without an heir. And so it's all about believing in the promises of God. And as Christians, we are also called Abraham's children. And as children of Abraham, we first come to God through faith, believing in the promises of things that we cannot see. Things like eternal life, things like heaven, things like the Holy Spirit, things like the redemptive work of sanctification. And as a sign, God commanded that all of Abraham's male offspring were to be circumcised. We see in Colossians 2, 11 through 12, that Paul states, In him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made not by hands, but by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And so we now are included in that covenant group, those who were circumcised, but now we are circumcised through baptism. And we see that this covenant depends on faith and belief that came before the law was given. Before anything that you could do, good or bad, in regard to the law, God promised this covenant to Abraham. Next we see that God tests Israel and gives them his law. Consider the marriage covenant for a moment. Two people agree by covenant before God to live with one another in exclusivity. This exclusivity assumes certain things that are outlined loosely in the vows that we take uh, as we are wed. Love, cherish, you and no other, very similar to God's covenant here. We see this marriage covenant. In fact, God calls Israel his bride. And in this covenant, there were certain vows and laws that needed to take place and be kept in order for the covenant to remain established and healthy. The only problem was that God knew from the very beginning that Israel was not going to be faithful to him. How many of you would marry your spouse if you knew ahead of time that they were not going to be faithful? And not just once, multiple times with multiple partners. In essence, he was setting them up for failure. He knew before he gave the law that they would not be able to keep it. And this brings us back to our friend Tevia in Fiddler of the Roof. Being the chosen people was not all it was cracked up to be. For instance, upon entering into the promised land, Joshua gave the people a warning from God. We find it in Joshua 24, verses 14 through 15. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods of your fathers beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers, who they served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so all the people promise, they're like, yes, we will, we'll serve the Lord. So far, so good. 
But then skip down to verses 19 and 20 in that same chapter where uh, Joshua responds to them after they said, we will serve the Lord. Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods. Then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. (laughs) Kind of odd, isn't it? Serve the Lord. Okay, we'll do it. You are not able to serve the Lord, right? And that's exactly what happened. They would try to serve the Lord for a while, but then they would fail and God's anger would be kindled against them. And he would send out nations like the Babylonians and the Medes and Persians to punish them. And after a while, they would repent of their sins, and God would restore them to their land. Wash, rinse, repeat. And so doesn't this indicate that Jehovah God is some kind of vindictive and cruel God who loves to heap upon us unrealistic demands? It would seem so if you look just at Israel in the Old Testament. But the reason is made clear for us why he did this in Romans 5.20. He says, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And so, where there is no awareness of sin, people don't think they need saving. But the more laws you heap upon people and the more you demand of them, the more people realize that they can't keep those laws. Yeah, it's easy to keep laws when there is no law. But when you're overwhelmed with these amount of laws, it becomes more and more difficult and we become aware of our condition. And so God was dealing with Israel in showing humanity their sinful condition, their need for a savior. And so Israel demonstrated the need for a sacrifice. After God gave uh, Moses the law on Mount Sinai, Moses came back down to deliver it to the people and saw that they had made for themselves a golden calf, which they were worshiping. And you're thinking, that didn't take long, right? Right? They're just out of Egypt, just been saved, just been through the Red Sea, and suddenly they're worshiping an idol right away. In such a short time, they had rebelled, knowing that Moses was just up the mountain speaking to God. It's like the teenager who says goodbye to their parents. Their parents are going off for a romantic weekend. Bye, Dad, Mom, have a great trip. As soon as the door closes, they head to the back to let their friends in for a kegger, right? Not so great, right? And so, God knew that this was going to happen, even though Moses didn't know it. Moses is up on the mountain, he's dealing with God, he's thinking he's bringing back these commandments, these rules for them. But do you know what God was also doing on the mountain, besides just giving the law to Moses? He was showing him how the tabernacle was supposed to be built. He was setting up a sacrificial system, even before they'd broken any of the laws, because he knew that they were going to be breaking laws. He knew that they were going to be sinning. And the principle for this that uh, was revealed by God in Leviticus 17.11, it says, For the life of a creature is in its blood, and I have given it to you to make an atonement for your souls on the altar since it's the lifeblood that makes atonement. We talked about this last week when we talked about the Feast of Atonement. And so there was a particular clan, the Levites. 
They were the chosen family that would be responsible for the job of overseeing the tabernacle. And so now we see a progression of events right here. God calls a particular individual to make a covenant with him. This individual believes God by faith. God blesses him with a family line and promises him a land to prosper in. Then God sets forth his laws, a set of rules for holy living. His chosen ones try to keep the law but fail miserably. And then God gives them a sacrificial system to help them from being destroyed by his wrath. But this was never meant to be an ongoing, continual cycle forever. And a hint of a more permanent solution began to creep its way into the prophets and into the writings. And the original promise that God gave Adam and Eve way back in the garden that the seed of the woman would someday crush the head of the serpent began to give us hints. In Genesis twenty-two eighteen, 18, it says, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now, this brings up an important point here. Why are God's chosen people called the Israelites? Why aren't they called the Abrahamites? Or why aren't they called the Isaacites? First, we see that Abraham made a major mistake in regard to understanding how the family line would continue. He listened to his wife, Sarah, who said, hey, I can't have a baby. Why don't you take my maidservant, Hagar, and have a baby with her? And so he did that, and that's where the Ishmaelites came in. And so now, suddenly, the family line is divided. It's not pure anymore. And so God skips that generation. And now consider Isaac, his son, also has two boys. One of them follows after the Lord. The other one rejects and despises his birthright. And so we saw Esau. The line again breaks. And so God determined that he was going to have his line come through Jacob, who he renamed Israel. And so this is how the 12 tribes came into being. And the Messiah now comes through a family line. Because there are many ways in which God could have chosen to reveal his mysterious plan of salvation. He could have sent Jesus down out of the clouds, right? Like he went up. Just come down, full-grown man. I'm your Messiah. I'm here. He could have had him born into a royal family with all of its benefits and all of its influences. He could have had him come in the modern era, right? with all the telecommunications that we have and the media. You know, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount could have been you know, broadcast to the entire world at the time. But instead, he came in the form of a baby boy born to an Israelite maiden named Mary. He was born under the oppression of the Roman Empire, which was, by the way, determined by the location of his birth. He was a son of a poor carpenter. Instead of utilizing modern technology in communications and transportation, Jesus walked everywhere that he went except when he rode in on a donkey colt on Palm Sunday. And so we wonder why. Why this way? Why this time in history? Why in this socioeconomic uh, niche did he get born? The short answer is that all these factors contributed to the humility which Jesus needed to come in. Let's ask ourselves the questions. What if Jesus had come in our modern era? How would he have been received? 
I don't think he would have been received very well, actually, because we know how he's received you know, in the message that we bring. And the reason that I say this is because Jesus uh, needed to come in this time, not in the modern era. In Galatians 4, 4 through 5, Paul says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so there are a number of reasons why Jesus had to come in that fullness of time. The first reason was that the Pax Romana was in place. This was the Roman peace. Rome had been uh, ruling over that area for about 300 years at that point. They had created a road system. They had created government. They had created order out of chaos. They had created borders that could be uh, passed through. And so that message could go out. And so the third was the common language, Greek. The Koine Greek was the common language at the time, and so most everybody spoke it, kind of like English today in many Western countries. A lot of people speak English and are taught that. And finally, the form of execution. Like in our modern era, nobody's <laughs> killed on a cross anymore, for the, that I know of, you know, as far as a, a form of punishment. Electric chair, you know, death by injection, hangings, these kinds of things. But the Bible told us that uh, it is a curse to be hung on a tree. And so Jesus had to come when this form of crucifixion, this form of death, was prevalent. Now, as I wrap up today, you might be thinking, well, good history lesson, Pastor Scott, but what does this have to do with my problems and my worries in America in 2022? Well, I would say for a Christian, it has everything to do with you. Because this is your history. How many of you ever went to Sunday school and sang the song, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons? Yeah, that was talking about this covenant. That was talking about the fact that we are now in that line. We are part of the Jewish people, extended out. Ephesians uh, 1, 3 through 5 shows us not only have we been chosen, but we have been adopted in to the nation of Israel. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us before him, before the foundations of the world, that we might be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And just like the nation of Israel here, we could not keep the law. We could not do that. And so we despaired under the reality of our sin. We began to despair of life. What is this life all about? It seems so meaningless and random. And so God brought us a deliverer. And next week we're going to be looking in uh, greater depth here at the arrival of the Messiah and his rejection. And we're going to be asking this question. Are the Jews responsible for the death of Christ? Are the Romans to blame? Would we have done anything differently if we were there at the time? And then we're going to be going on looking at our last message in this series at the current physical nation of Israel. How do we deal with the Jews who are scattered all over the earth? How does God relate to them in his covenant? And so 
That is a very important question because a lot of people believe that the end times are tied specifically to Israel. And we need to grapple with, with that. I'm sure that you're going to interact with people out in the world today, especially as we look to the end times, who are going to talk about these kinds of things. And so we need to know, well, what does the Bible say about that? And so this is a very important and very crucial thing for you to understand. Because the church has not done a very good job, by the way, in regard to Israel. Even Martin Luther himself, he was anti-Semitic. And that is a scar against us. That's a stain against the Lutheran church that we have to grapple with and to understand. And so it's very important for us in this modern day to deal with this question of Israel. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for the nation of Israel, these people who were chosen by you. And you brought your covenant. You came through the line of an Israelite girl. And Lord, we thank you for uh, helping us to understand these things through your word. We thank you that we have been adopted in to the family. And as Gentiles, we are now included in that amazing salvation plan. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon series from Elam. If you are encouraged today, would you consider supporting our online ministry through a financial contribution? Personal checks can be made out to Elam Lutheran Church and sent to 11504 26th Street, Northeast, Lake Stevens, Washington, 98258. Or you can give online at elamlutheran.net. Thank you and may God bless you the rest of your day.